this morning as we're gathered, what a great blessing it is in so many ways and on so many levels to appreciate the great goodness of God toward each of us, to appreciate the marvelous message that's so often found in the Word of God. We've already had an opportunity in a Bible study hour to focus attention on certain aspects or passages within the Scriptures. And now as we engage in our worship hour to sing songs, to pray, and now for the next little bit to give a portion thought to the matter of the Word of God. I hope that as you're reading along during the Bible lessons this year, as we're reading through the Bible, we've now come to the book of Joshua, as you may well observe, and these comments might well be appropriate. We've now read some 307 chapters of the Word of God as of the end of the day yesterday, and that brings us now over one-fourth the total, a little over 25%. Yet. Currently, as we read in the Old Testament, we're about to conclude the book of Joshua. In the New Testament, we, are, of course, continue to read in the Gospel according to Luke. And tonight's lesson will be taken from the ninth chapter of that book. For this morning, might I invite you to think with me about an overpowering saga. In fact, very compelling in so many ways as it related to us in Joshua chapters 6 and 7. You may well realize that this scene, of course, occurred so many centuries ago now. But nonetheless, the message continues to be very stunning. The message continues to be overwhelming in regard to the demands of our perfect God of heaven. I hope for the next few moments that you'll consider with me the matter of Jericho, as well as the little village or city of Ai. To do that, let's first of all appreciate a foundation in terms of the text itself, and then see if we can't make some applications of those matters to your life and, and to mine. In Romans 15:4, the text still reads, For whatsoever things are written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. And so it was that though this event literally occurred so long ago in a place nearly halfway around the world from here, it nonetheless speaks about the perfectness of the God of heaven, His demand in regard to obedience, and that which happens to those who choose to disobey. As we give thought to those things at the bottom of that slide, you'll notice the tremendous offer seen in even passages like this. The offer that it presents to us by way of human weakness, but the opportunity for God's forgiveness. Let's begin in our journey by looking at the text itself. Many of these features are general enough that you and I are well apprised of the overall presentation. But the children of Israel had left Egypt. They had done so because there they were under the great duress of the oppression of that people. But upon leaving, of course, they had in their view the promise of a sweeter land, a land that really flowed with milk and honey, a land that was fertile and rich a land that had all the things to offer that they might well desire. As they began to march toward that land, a number of obstacles presented themselves, as you can well tell. Sometimes it involved food, sometimes water, sometimes enemies that would come their way, but God saw them through all of it so long as they were faithful to Him. You may remember, though, two years into that journey, they committed an, an incredible offense unto God. They had reached the point of being ready to enter into that promised land. They were going to do so from the south. And here they were perched and prepared. 
it was the case that God commanded Moses to send spies into that land, and that he did, and yet ten of them came back and said, we can't take it. Ten of them, due to unbelief and faithlessness, in fact, led to the punishment of virtually the entire congregation. God promised that because you didn't believe in me, you will never enter that land. And so they died in the wilderness before ever reaching it. Only two, the two spies, Joshua and Caleb, that did say they could take it. Only they, because of their confidence and belief in God, God promised them they would live to see it and they would set foot in it. That disobedience of Numbers chapters 13 and 14 in many ways is a distant shadow to the events we now see as we study Joshua this morning. In those years following, God again would look with favor upon them. They were blessed with victory over the kings, Sihon and Og. They were blessed in a number of other ways. But to come to this book of Joshua, we now reach the following observation. That great leader, Moses, the time of his life had come to its end. You may remember, due to his sin, God told him he would not even enter into the land he would be allowed to see it. In Deuteronomy 34, Moses dies. However, his successor has already been chosen. Joshua will be the one who really will lead them into that land. And the very last item on that slide brings us then to that book that we shall then take up in our study this morning. The book of Joshua divides naturally into two parts. The first 12 chapters describe the conquest of the children of Israel over the land of Canaan. As they defeat the inhabitants there, as they overwhelm and overpower the individuals, the last half of the book, chapters 13 to 24, describe their division of the land, how that by lot the various tribes occupied the portions of it. As you come then to these opening sections of the book, many things that are well familiar to us occur, and I've tried to highlight them exceedingly briefly. In chapter 1, God commissions Joshua. He tells him in earnestness not to depart from the left or the right of what he has been commanded, but rather he is to be courageous, he is to be brave, and he is to rely thoroughly and completely upon God. He is to follow the very Word of God in all ways. In chapter 2 and 3, we remember even here, we find, they find the people finally crossed the Jordan River. They had for some time been settled on the plains of Moab, and there across the Jordan River was that land that they'd been looking forward to for four decades. Finally now, they're going to cross and enter the land. Can you imagine the excitement? Can you imagine the inbuilt fervor that must have characterized them? You'll notice in light of that, the first major battle they encounter in chapter 6. The very first major city that they decide to engage in battle is Jericho. It all goes well because of the following. The people do exactly what God commands. As they do so, and we shall look at it somewhat interestingly in a moment, you'll remember that in this battle, they overwhelm Jericho and really the God gives them the battle gives them the victory. Following that battle of Jericho, you'll notice, however, that they battle against a little town called Ai. They lose. They lost. In fact, not only did they lose, this little bitty village put the children of Israel to flight. 
one might immediately wonder, what happened? There was such victory over the gigantic city of Jericho, and now to get beat by a little bitty town? We'll learn today that something major happened. There was a reason for this. And finally, you'll appreciate that that little defeated AI, however, signals to you and me a timeless lesson, a lesson that you and I should remember even in the heart of the New Testament. Let's now come to the point of looking with care at some of these features and doing so by looking at several observations that can be so meaningful to you and to me. We will add some particular features and thoughts to those previous comments, but we'll do so under the heading of these observations. First, think with me again about the rest, R-E-S-T, that attached to the description that we made earlier. These people had meandered through a wilderness. They had left a land of oppression. And needless to say, their life was not terribly pleasant during the course of that wilderness wandering. They weren't surrounded by luxury. They didn't have a lot of extravagances. However, they were looking for some rest. There was a land waiting for them, a land of milk and honey, a land in which it was not only fertile, but it would bring forth bountifully and in abundance. This was a place by which they could finally lay the burdens of the day down and appreciate the glorious goodness of the God of heaven. Would you think with me for just a moment about the rest that awaits for you and me? You and I also know, isn't it true, that we, of course, live in a world and so often it's encumbered with a great deal of work and activity. In fact, doesn't it seem that the work is never finished? You and I seemingly have so much to do both in the physical, civil realm and also the work that God has given for us even in the spiritual realm. I believe it fair to say that all of us are looking forward to some rest. And yet the New Testament uses this very description before us, the children of Israel entering the land of Canaan, as a figurative description of the rest that awaits you and me. The time will come when we will end our sojourn upon this planet. We will end our life in this flesh. We will put off the mortal coil of it, if you will, and in fact take up residence in the life beyond this one. Doesn't it remind us that in Hebrews chapter 4, this very description is given. There remaineth therefore a rest for the people of God. Joshua gave them rest, but it was temporary rest. The inspired writer in Hebrews 4 points out in verses 9 and 10, you and I as Christians, the saints of God, the people of God, have the luxury of looking forward to the ultimate permanent rest which God makes available to those that are His children. You see, you and I also look for some rest. Doesn't it remind us also in Revelation 14, 13, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, and their works do follow them. That golden opportunity of rest from our labors. It is something to think about, isn't it, that the time coming when we shall be able to rest from the burdens and difficulties and the onslaught of problems that surround our way. That rest is highlighted in a number of passages, not the least of which are these. In Colossians 1 verse number 5, Paul was able to speak about the hope laid up for you in heaven. 
Paul could say that without any shame. He could say that without any hesitation. The hope laid up for you in heaven. Despite the claims of some religious organizations today, this earth is to be nobody's eternal home. We look for a place who, that's far grander than this earth could ever be. We look for a location, a place that is the very temple and placement of God, Revelation 21. Isn't it true in speaking about that rest? That Paul, or rather Peter, the inspired writer, was able to make this reference in 1 Peter 1 beginning in verse 3. He wrote there about the blessedness that attaches to those whose confidence and faith is in God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy hath, mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ unto the dead, unto an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, reserved in heaven for you. There is a reference then to a placement and inheritance that's both undefiled and that waits in heaven. Our chore and challenge is, of course, to be ready to receive it. To so live in a way that that, by the virtue of resurrection of Christ, can be our eternal abode. Just as Joshua led the people into a rest, so too you and I look forward to a far greater rest than that ever was. For isn't it true that although they did enter the promised land, they had to fight battles at Jericho. They were often beset by enemies, but in heaven there shall be neither. There will be no enemies to overwhelm. Satan will long since have been cast into the fiery lake of brimstone, Revelation 20, verses 10 and 11. You and I, of course, look for a real place of rest. I might ask in passing at this moment, are you and I laboring with earnestness to receive that rest? Notice, if they took this one for granted, which many of them did by disobedience, they died before they ever received it. You and I, as we shall shortly find as well, can so conduct ourselves that we won't receive the eternal rest either. What about a second observation? This consideration of patience. We've already learned that for that span of some 40 years, Due to disobedience, the people died. Those, of course, that were age 20 and upward. But think with me for a moment about those that were younger. Those that were age 10 or 12 or 15. They had heard their parents speak about God's leading us to a place that's a land of milk and honey. He's watching over us and leading us to this sweet place of rest and abundance. But you'll notice, even they had to wait 40 years to get there. Patience was required. Perseverance was required. Let's develop that thought a little bit more thoroughly. This word patience, as I've used it here, really does encompass both the thought of patience as well as the thought of perseverance. And both, it seems, were needfully important to the people of Israel. And both, isn't it true? are vitally needful for you and for me. You and I as Christians also need a heaping dose of patience as well as a thorough apprisement of perseverance. Let's build each one of them like this. If you and I quit or give up, even though we may start the Christian journey, we may well be baptized for the name for the remission of our sins, into the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We may well be added to the church, but at that point forward, though the beginning is good, 
If we become lazy, slothful, disobedient, in some ways indifferent, apathetic, or, care, or careless, we will forfeit our eternal home too. You notice perseverance is absolutely demanded. And sometimes that's a challenging thing, isn't it? For the world besets us by virtue of the workings of the devil with things that make that often so difficult. Sometimes there are many who would rather give up than push onward. There are others, and you and I know it often, who on the news reports it seems they've reached the point of taking their own life rather than continue on this earth because they somehow think, I suppose it'll be better for them. If you don't die in the Lord, it'll be no better. We each understand well that to die outside the Lord, it's only worse after you leave this life. Didn't Jesus paint a dramatic and vivid picture in Luke 16 about a rich man who had it all here and left and found it far worse? We are well apprised of the fact then that with perseverance, we must move onward. And isn't that what Jesus taught? In Matthew 10, even with regard to those who were going to be involved in the very destruction of Jerusalem, that event was four decades later, and to them Jesus said, He that endureth to the end shall be saved. If you get careless before then, no hope. If you give up before then, too bad. May you and I then sojourn with carefulness and do so with perseverance, not giving up. For may we say heaven is worth whatever we endure here. Not only that, think about the attitude of patience. Maybe you and I are given to impatience. Maybe we want things immediately and we don't want to wait for them. Didn't the writer in Psalm 27, 14 say, wait upon the Lord? God's timetable so often is not mine or yours. He knows what's best and He knows when it's best. Maybe in light of that, the children of Israel were given a valiant lesson in both patience and perseverance. It would be 40 years until they finally reached that land, and 38 of those happened after the disobedience in Numbers chapter 13. Maybe as you and I think about that attribute of waiting and patience, it does lead directly to the next thought. I've tried to summarize it like this. Oh, what sin can cost what it does cost. The word sin, it's always an amazing thing how little sometimes that word is used. Our society is filled with all kinds of words that speak to things that are bad, but rarely is ever the word sin used. We describe things in other ways, do we not? And yet, consider with me for a moment. First, in light of Moses... Here was a man who had led the children of Israel and had led them in amazing ways, and yet due to his disobedience, his sinfulness, when he struck that rock twice in Numbers chapter 20, God told him, you will never now enter the promised land because you didn't acknowledge and glorify me. Here was a sin. Look what it cost him. May I ask, what about the children of Israel as a whole? Here they had marched out of Egypt, 603,550 strong fighting men. No doubt many of them had embedded within their heart the anticipation of Canaan, the excitement that must have characterized them. But yet of that number, due to their sin, only two of them made it. Only two of them, Joshua and Caleb. Look what sin cost them. They died in the wilderness, never saw the land. 
May I ask, isn't it still the case that look what sin can cost us? This person who left the shackles of sin, began the Christian life, in fact was faithful for a while, but then, but then, became unfaithful, began to do other things, live other ways. Look at what sin will cost him or her. If things aren't made right, if that life isn't made whole, if reconciliation to God isn't made complete, look at what sin has cost that individual. Peter said it like this in 2 Peter chapter 2. He said, in fact, the latter end with them is worse than the beginning. It's worse off for them now than it was if they'd never obeyed the gospel. That helps all of us think twice, doesn't it, about the decisions we make tomorrow, Tuesday, Wednesday, the decisions we make every day are of vital significance because our standing before God depends upon it. May we live with wisdom. May we live with dedication regardless what culture and society says. May we live with determination to this book regardless what those around us may find the norm. You and I are to be those peculiar individuals spoken of in the Word of God. Peculiar meaning that we are possessed by God, Titus 2.14. And as we're possessed by Him, we will stand apart from the world. You'll notice some other thoughts relative to this. Sin cost these individuals of whom we've spoken an entrance to that land. But you and I know well that sin causes us to be separated from God. Those first two verses of Isaiah 59 still read, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God and have hid His face from you that He will not hear. The concept of separation from God is not a minor one, is it? One of the main ideas about the tabernacle was the fact that in its inner recess was the most holy place, and there was the Ark of the Covenant, and upon top of it was the mercy seat, and there's where God was in His meeting with them. So when they were apart from the temple, they were separated from God. That temple was pitched right in the middle of the encampment site. Today, it's a frightful thing, or should be, to be thought of as being separated from God. And yet, there are individuals who choose to live that way. May you and I never be so foolish. Maybe this next verse will highlight some features about the earnestness of that decision. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse number 26, a reference is made to individuals who make the following choice, people who, in fact, choose to sin willfully. To sin willfully. That means with determination. It means with a prerogative of choice on their part. It's not that it happened accidentally. They have chosen to disobey God. What does the Hebrew writer say their fate is? They have trodden underfoot the Son of God. And so the very attribute of salvation hinging upon the blood of Christ is not available to them in the state in which they are. They have trodden underfoot the very blood of Jesus Christ. That, in fact, should be more frightening than words can describe. And yet, isn't it amazing how those kinds of choices sometimes are made? An individual will choose to absent him or herself from the services, which may seem minor, but yet it's not. For that's a sin, Hebrews 
You'll notice that other things, the language we employ. If I tomorrow speak inappropriately, foolishly, and inadvisedly in such a way to put a stumbling block before someone else, I have sinned, and in so doing, if I willfully do such a thing, look at where I stand, and look at where you stand. Our words then must be closely guarded and watched, to be as it were seasoned with salt, Colossians 4, 6. In light of language like those, choices that individuals make, look at what awaits those who do rely on the blood of Christ. The forgiveness of sins, Ephesians 1, 7. Colossians, the opening chapter of that book, describes it as that wonderful redemption that comes through His blood. You see, if we then willfully sin, the blood of Christ isn't accessible in the way we currently are. We need to make a change of mind and come rushing back to the side of Christ. Maybe those thoughts so far prepare us for another one. The troubles that await in sin. Troubles? Oh yes, indeed. Isn't that one of the paradoxical things about sin? Satan makes it look so alluring and so tempting, and that's what in fact makes it seem so inviting. And yet once it's pursued, the latter end is often terribly, terribly troubling. Let's build that thought in the following way. It's now time to come to Achan. The children of Israel had entered into this promised land, and in terms of their duties, they were conquering the various cities. The first one on the list, as we noted, was Jericho. God's plan for the conquering of Jericho was very unorthodox, to say the least. God told Joshua, you lead the people, and they are to march in silence once a day around this city for six days. They are not to say a word while they're marching. The only noise is to be the trumpet blasts of those who are leading the parade. And then on the seventh day, again in silence, with only the trumpets in the front blowing, you march around it seven times. And so we have a total of 13 marchings around the city over the span of this seven days. And then, Joshua, when you give the signal, everybody is to shout. And they did. They did. And when they did, those walls surrounding Jericho crumbled to the ground. A tremendous victory was had as the children of Israel at once went into the city and conquered the individuals there. It is with that in mind, though, that God had given a commandment to Israel. In Joshua 6, 18, He had said, Do not take of the accursed thing. Obviously, Jericho had much wealth within it, silver and gold. Children of Israel, you do not take of any of it personally, for it is all going to the treasury of the Lord. But you can imagine the temptation. Here you are plundering through the city and doing that which was the command of God, and out of the corner of your eye you espy a rather sizable wedge of gold or silver or some fine Babylonian garments. Achan saw them. Achan took them. Achan hid them. Put them under his tent because he was going to safe keep them for the benefit of himself or his family. Achan thought no one else knew, I'm sure. But you'll notice something happened as chapter 7 began. Here we find again preparation was being made for the next battle. It was Ai this time. And as I mentioned earlier, a terribly tiny town compared to Jericho. In fact, the advisors to Joshua said, Don't even send all the people. They won't be needed. 
Ai is just too small. Just send a few of the men. And so Joshua did. He only sent 3,000. But yet of that 3,000, the little town of Ai put them on the run. 36 of them were slaughtered and slain. And Joshua was beside himself. How could this have happened? What is going on here? And so he prayed to God. He and the elders of Israel fell on their faces in prostrate fashion before God, earnestly beseeching Him, What has happened that you've allowed this to take place? In fact, Joshua even accused God, believe it or not. At this point, something amazing, however, happens. As we develop this thought, we notice that God, in effect, said to Joshua, Joshua, get up. There's sin in the camp. The reason you lost today, Ai, is because there's sin in the number. Joshua, stop praying, get up and purge sin out of the camp. At that point, the people began to be called. One by one, the tribes passed before him, and the tribe of Judah was taken. Next, out of the tribe of Judah, the families of the various numbers were paraded before him, and the family, ultimately, of Achan was taken. Finally, Achan confessed what he had done. He told them, you go and look under my tent. And so, though they hastily ran, lifted up, looked, and there it was, the Babylonian garment, the money he had stolen, and the lesson text that Brother Bill read earlier gave us the final fate. He, his family, and all that he owned were stoned and burned. Stoned and burned. Oh, the troubles that come from sin. I'm sure Achan didn't think anything like that was going to happen. They'll never miss one Babylonian garment. Out of all the wealth in this city, surely they won't miss just a little wedge of gold. And yet it cost him his life, the life of his family members, and not only were they stoned, their bodies were burned. Still remaining as one of the final statements of sadness and soreness attached to their disobedience. As we and I build those thoughts, doesn't it read like this? Haven't we seen proof positive that the way of the transgressor is hard? To quote Proverbs thirteen fifteen, That hasn't changed in the slightest. When you and I choose to disobey, we may not in this life be stoned and burned, but a worse fate than that awaits at judgment. If it isn't made right, think about being cast forever into a lake of fire. Think about being cast forever in a hopeless condition apart from the loving arms of a God who was willing to save, but you weren't willing. Oh, the troubles that come with sin. Maybe those troubles are highlighted as you look at some of the New Testament examples. We find trouble in the church at Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapters 1 through 16. We find trouble in family in Philippians chapter 4. We find troubles attached to a number of other conditions, and yet we find that those were due in one way or another to the choices that came from that which was a sinful matter. Well, if only you and I could be attached to the very obedience of God and to remain faithfully to it, and if so, doesn't it remind us how good it is for those that are faithful? As you and I analyze our life today, where do we stand in that regard? We can always rest assured that if we disobey God, His Word is absolutely inviolate. We may flaunt it here, but we can rest assured we won't get by with it. 
We can rest assured that the great God of heaven will be waiting and a sorely regretful sentence shall be announced. One final thought relating to that one. Notice on this occasion that the sin of Achan not only caused himself to lose his life, but his wife, his children. Isn't it often the case our sins affect those that love us the most? those that care about us and those who would in many ways do anything for us. And when we act with such foolishness, we hurt them, we cause them sleeplessness, we cause them earnest, anxious moments, hoping we'll come to our senses. That's the kind of thing sin does. No wonder we look for a place beyond this one where there's no problems like that. One last thought today, and the lesson as a final reminder will be ours. One last thing about Joshua. It's often been noted, I suppose, that Joshua was the unsung hero of the, New Te of the Old Testament. As he led the children of Israel finally into the land of Canaan, finally into receiving the promise God had made them, we notice on this occasion that Joshua was wrong about something. When there was sin in the camp and he didn't know it, he thought God was to blame. In those verses there in Joshua chapter 7, after they had just been beaten at Ai, Joshua to God basically said, It's your fault. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to allow us here in the midst of these enemies to die like this? That sounds a lot like some of the claims of the earlier children of Israel, but this time it was Joshua. But may we never ever forget, God to Joshua said, Get up, purge sin from the camp. Sin is the problem. And when sin was purged from the camp, they went on to defeat Ai, and they went on to defeat the other parts of the land and to encompass it as God wished them to be. When you and I encounter difficulties surrounding this, may we realize that the problem was not with God. It was with sin in the camp. And today, when a church has problems, you can rest assured there's sin in the camp. Attitudes are improper. Dispositions of heart are not right. There's sin in the camp. When there's problems in a family, in almost all instances, sin is to blame. Maybe we should then reflect on what Joshua was told to do here. The principal idea was purge sin from the camp. Get things right with God and then all will be well. You'll notice a number of passages in the New Testament that all speak to that very idea. When the church fails to be what God would have it to be, the fault is not with God. God's Word is certain. The fault lies with those who claim to be parts of that body. When other things are not as they ought to be, the fault, when it comes to religion, is not with God, for His plan is perfect. 1 Corinthians 13 verse 10. Today, another thing that's perfect is, of course, that plan of salvation and the features attached to obedience. Today, this very day, where do you and I stand in terms of being the one before the very presence of God? Is all well? Sometimes when we think that those problems arise for matters without, like Joshua did, ultimately the matters are within. I hope as we each analyze ourselves to ask whether we are in the faith. That text is found in 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Are you and I in the faith today? The scene at Jericho and the scene today is a powerful distinction.
Are you and I more like Ai or are we more like Jericho? At Jericho, obedience was there and things went well, but at Ai they didn't. I hope that as we analyze ourselves in that regard, if you find yourself in need of a public response, this opportunity is given. Brother Adam has announced a song, and we're going to stand and sing that. If there be one or more in the audience that would have a desire to make things right between you and your God, realize that He is the one watching, and it is His plan that needs to be fully put in place. That plan of salvation, namely that you believe Jesus to be the Son of God, repent of your sins, confess His name as the only begotten Son of God, and be baptized for the remission of your sins. Upon so doing, you'll be added to the church by the Lord Himself, and upon living faithfully till death, heaven will be yours. If along the way, though, you stumble, public things done, others know about that disgrace and sinfulness, you need to make it right with your brethren. Acts 8, verses 20 and following. Today we pray with you and for you, and if we could be of help in any way today, why delay? Why not come even now while together we stand and while we sing?